This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, brains. Where would we be without them? They control our thinking, speech, feelings, sight, and hearing. They create and store our memories. They control our breathing. They make it possible for us to walk without falling down, for goodness sake. Brains are super handy and mostly dependable. Or are they? Fans of the public radio program and podcast Hidden Brain have come to value the core concept of the program, that unconscious patterns drive human behavior, for better and worse. Host Shankar Vedantam has made it his life's work to help a wide audience understand those dynamics. Vedantam's new book, co-authored with Bill Mesler, is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. The work explores ways in which evolution designed our brain to survive, not to seek the truth, and how the lies we tell ourselves sustain us and our relationship to other people and the world. As the authors write, our self-deception, quote, enables us to accomplish useful social, psychological, and biological goals, unquote. This conversation touches on many timely subjects, such as why facts may be unconvincing for many people, and why our best approach to mending divisions and bad behaviors may be inquiry, kindness, and compassion. Shankar Vedantam is an author, science correspondent, and the host of Hidden Brain. He was interviewed by KUOW's Ross Reynolds on April 13th, Town Hall Seattle presented their conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And Shankar, uh, really fun to talk to you today. A uh, longtime fan of yours. Um, I've been listening to your show for quite a while. And I got to say, one of the attractions is you, your kind of warm and empathetic personality really helps carry the show and make some of these complicated ideas more understandable. I'd always assumed that you came from a background in psychology or as a therapist because you're so warm and vibrant on the program. But you come to it, you came to this as a journalist. Tell us more about how you got into the hidden brain game. Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much uh, for doing this, Ross. And thank you for Town Hall for hosting me. I'm really thrilled and delighted to be here. Wish we could be doing it in person. Uh, Yes. So I spent uh, 25 years as a science journalist covering all manner of different topics in science. Uh, First as a general assignment science uh, writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer and then at the Washington Post. And over the course of this 25 years, I slowly gravitated to writing about uh, the the mind uh, and because it just seemed like the mind and the brain provided the most interesting questions that were out there. They also provide in some ways the, the biggest open questions that are out there. We understand how the heart works significantly better than we understand how the brain works. And just from the point of view of uh, the science and where the science is leading us and the questions that people have, uh, Hidden Brain is sort of premised on the idea that we can marry together people's interests in their own behavior, in the behavior of their colleagues, their friends, their family, um, and marry that together with rigorous science that allows us to test and conduct experiments that get insights into people. So I often say the show is a marriage of science and storytelling, and that's what we aspire to do every week. You know, uh, a lot of your shows deal with delusions, uh, cognitive dissonance in our minds that are harmful to us. And the new book flips that entirely. The title says it all, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Um, You quote the great 20th century philosopher, George Costanza. (laughs) <laughs> to, the effect, to the effect that it's, it's not a lie if you believe it. And that's one of your examples of delusions that actually can be helpful. I wonder if you could expand upon that. Yeah, so George Costanza, of course, said it's not a lie if you can believe it. This is from Seinfeld. And, but, you know, you can, you can see how this could potentially be a dangerous idea 
the the tricky thing about self-deception, and as you're absolutely right, we've covered the topic of self-deception many, many times on Hidden Brain. And this book, in many ways, is a surprising book for someone like me to write, because in some ways, I am a card-carrying rationalist. I'm a card-carrying logical person. I believe in science. And I also believe in dismantling self-deception. I try and lead my life by seeing reality for what it is. But I think over the last five or 10 years, I've come to see lots of different ways in which our brains either are designed to deceive us, or in some ways, the deceptions that are brought on by the brain are actually functional. And for a long time, I found this a very difficult idea to stomach as a logical and rational person. The idea that self-deception could be good for you seems profoundly disturbing to me. But again, I think we try and follow the science where the science leads. And the science, in fact, does point to many instances where self-deception can be good for us. And I'm sure we'll talk about many of those in the, in, in the, in the rest of the conversation. Yeah, give us an example of a delusion that's useful. Let me give you the very simplest of, of examples. Uh, and in some ways, this is the, I would say it's almost a canonical example because all of us have been there. Uh, nearly many of us have children of our own, but even if people don't have children, everyone has been a child. Everyone has had parents. And the parent-child relationship is a relationship that's marked by great heaps of delusional thinking. So parents typically believe that children are unique and special, miracles beyond all miracles, I know when my own daughter was born, I thought that she was the most special child in the entire universe. If I was a thought about it logically and rationally, I would have had to say, well, of course, it can't be that millions of parents can simultaneously believe that their kids are the most special child in the universe. That logically can't be the case. But it turns out the delusional beliefs that parents have about their children turns out to be very functional because parenting is actually very difficult. It's hard. It's time consuming. It's expensive. You know, there's, it's very frustrating. Things go wrong. You're sleep deprived. And if we didn't love our offspring as insanely and as irrationally as we do, most of us would not be successful parents. And in our evolutionary history, if nature actually had not endowed parents with this delusional love for their children, species, our species itself might not have come to be. So at a very simple level, that's an example of how seeing reality for what it is might not always be functional. One of the central ideas of my book is that it's a book informed by evolutionary thinking and the idea that as far as evolution is concerned, it's less important what is true and it's more important what works. So evolution is more interested in functionality rather than in rationality. Also that unlimited love that parents have for their children can sometimes be harmful. They can, they can create a deluded child because of the way they treat the child. But I thought it was so interesting, you sort of distinguish between how delusions might be harmful to an individual, but collectively delusions preserve the species. Could you expand on that? Yes. Yeah, so this is a really tricky area, and I'm so glad you brought this up. I mean, because we all know, we all see in our personal lives, parents who are so delusionally in love with their children, that in some ways they end up harming their children, or they allow their children to do great harm, and they basically look the other way. You know, one of the great uh, epics in, in Indian mythology is the Mahabharata, and it's built around the story about a king who is so in love with his son that he cannot see the son is bringing the kingdom into ruin. And, and in the epic, the king is actually literally blind and his literal blindness is a metaphor for the blindness of his love for his offspring. There's no question that I think blind love can do, can do great harm. This is the paradox, I think, of self-deception, Ross, which is the very same phenomenon in some instances can do great good and in some instances, it can do great harm. I'm not sure there's actually a clean dividing line. You know, if you were to basically have to wave a magic wand and say, let's rid parents of all their self-deceptions about their children, I'm fairly confident that the outcomes will not be good. I think many parents will not be good parents. Many children will not get the kind of parents they actually want and need. You might do away with the minority of parents whose love for their children goes over the edge or goes over the extreme, but you'll end up harming a great number of people who are benefited by self-deception. The point you were making a second ago, though, the distinction between the individual and the group is a really important distinction to make. When you think about evolution and why it is evolution has endowed this, and it's not just in the human species, you know, everyone knows that if you're out walking in the, in the woods somewhere and you come between a mama bear and a cub, it's a very bad place to be. You know, standing between a mama bear and a cub is an extremely dangerous place to be because we understand parental love is irrational, delusional, and extraordinarily powerful. And it sends a powerful signal to everyone who might think of harming that little baby cub. 
you know, mama's, mama bear is not going to let it go. Mama bear is not going to sort of roll over. And so in some ways, the, 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 the roots of these delusions go back to our very, very ancient evolutionary past. And as you pointed out a second ago, these are not necessarily designed with our individual self-interests in mind. They're often designed with the interests of our genes. And those genes, of course, are what protect our species and groups as a whole. I want to go back to lies and to George Costanza and his line, it's not a lie if you believe it. Of course, we always tell lies. And of course, we're not brutally honest in everything that we say to someone. And in fact, you take that a bit further. You you write, it would be surprising if our brains were always designed to prioritize the truth. Yeah, so I think this is one of the the really interesting and disturbing uh, questions about how the brain works. I think most of us, I think when we look inward, when we introspect, we believe that we can see how our minds are working, that we believe we have sort of access to everything that's happening in our minds. But even a cursory glance at how our minds work would tell us that that's not the case, that in many ways, vast amounts of what happens in our brain are essentially hidden from us. In fact, this was the thesis of my first book, and it's the thesis of the hidden brain, the idea that much of the brain, in fact, is hidden from us. It's not accessible to conscious introspection. And so in some ways, what's really happening, you know, is the metaphor that I like to draw is a metaphor of what happens in a, in a play. If we were actually physically at, at, at the town hall today, you and I might be sitting on a stage and the audience would see us on the stage. But the audience would also recognize that in order to make what's on the stage possible, numerous things need to be happening backstage. There need to be people who've looked after the lights. There are ushers who've looked, gotten people to their seats. There are people who are addressing the air conditioning. There are people who are looking after the sound system. All of those things backstage have to happen for the action on the stage to actually happen. Our brains are exactly the same way. The things that we are aware of, our conscious minds, are made possible by this vast amount of processing that's actually happening outside of our conscious awareness. And it turns out much of that processing is not designed to show us reality. Much of that processing is designed to show us selective slices of reality that are often designed to guide us in one direction or another. Again, the delusional love that parents have for their children, this is a product of brain chemistry. The brain releases, you know, the body releases you know, hormones like oxytocin when a child is born. And those hormones literally change brain chemistry to cause us to basically have this irrational love for our offspring. All of that happens behind the scenes, of course, as far as you and your conscious mind are concerned, you have a child, you're in love with the child, the child is the most special child in the world. I'm speaking with Shankar Vedantam with Bill Nessler, his new book is called Useful Delusions. Um, you take a class analysis to this in some ways. You write for most people on earth, to forswear self-deception would invite despair and dysfunction. Yes, I think this is one of the things that I realized because I think when I was in my 20s or 30s, when I saw people reach for delusional beliefs, I often had, to be honest, a fair amount of contempt for them. I said, people must be simple-minded or foolish or idiotic to believe the things that they believe. And as I've grown older, I think I've come to be more compassionate and empathetic towards people because I've come to realize that part of the reason you might not need to reach for delusional beliefs is precisely because your life is going pretty well. You know, there's the old saying, there are no atheists in the foxhole. And, you know, perhaps there are some atheists in the foxhole, but the principle is is the idea is that when you're actually in a position of great vulnerability, your mind is much more likely to reach for beliefs that will comfort you, to reach for hopes that will sustain you. Um, When we think about our own lives, you know, all, you know, we might live for, let's say, 70, 80, 90 years. Life expectancy in the U.S. might be, you know, around 80 years right now. You know, but in, in, the, in, the, in the context of life on Earth, or, you know, 80 years is just a blink of an eye. So all of our individual lives, you know, in the context of our entire species or the context of life on Earth or the context of the universe, our individual lives are really puny and, and really, to be honest, utterly forgettable. Uh, you know, there have been thousands of generations of people that have come before us and, and other species that have come before us. We don't remember them. It's very likely that we will suffer the same fate when we in, in, the, in the decades and centuries to come. And But this is not a useful attitude when it comes to waking up in the morning and getting on our Zoom calls and doing all the things we need to function. And so all over the world, people find ways to generate meaning, even if their lives do not have meaning. And the more your life is marked by hardship, the more your life is marked by difficult circumstances, the more likely you become to actually reach for those for those beliefs. Uh, psychological studies, for example, show that when you put people in, in a lab and you deprive them of feeling of self-control, uh, deprive them of feeling of control, not self-control, 
where you give the, you lend them the sense that their their lives lack meaning and purpose, they become much more likely, just in the context of a lab experiment, to see patterns in random noise. So you sit them before a television set that's showing static, they're more likely to see images in the television set, or you show them random gyrations in the stock market, and they believe that they can see patterns in the stock market. So the experience of a lack of control is something that we find aversive. And when we experience a lack of control, our minds in some ways compensate for that lack of control by finding ways to assert control, by reaching for beliefs that in some ways can soothe our anxieties. We've all heard of the placebo effect. If I give you the red pill and tell you it's going to make you feel better, you're apt to feel better. That's if, if I was a doctor, not me, the talk show host. <laughs> you write, But you write about placebo surgery, which I just found an amazing concept. Talk a little bit about what that is. Yeah, so the placebo effect has been known for centuries in medicine, which is that people get better sometimes when they just go to see a doctor. I mean, all of us have had the experience of, you know, having aches and pains and you walk into the doctor's office and suddenly the, the aches and pains suddenly disappear when you're in the doctor's office. The placebo effect is very powerful and really speaks to the connections that people have with healers and the trust and faith that we have in medical systems and the medical providers who are looking after us. Most people think about placebos as sugar pills, where you think, as you said, the example of, you know, you get the, the big sugar pill that makes you feel better. But it turns out if you think about the placebo really as a relationship between patient and healer, there's no reason why that should be limited to medications. And there have been some studies that have actually tried to expand this and look at the placebo effect in surgery. Now, surgery is actually one of those domains where most surgical procedures have not been tested according to the same norms as medications are tested. So if uh, you, know, you have a new vaccine that comes out, you give the vaccine to 50% of a group and you give a placebo to 50% of the group and you see who does better or a medication you give to 50% of the group and 50% of the group. With surgery, you're typically not doing that. When someone comes up with a new surgical procedure, people are not typically saying, let's give half the people the surgical procedure and half this people sham surgery. So the placebo has not really been used very actively in surgery, but it turns out that when you actually try and do this, when you actually conduct studies that have a sham surgery arm to them, in many of these cases, patients respond to the sham surgery as if they've actually been operated on. So in these surgeries, the surgeon is actually making incisions in the skin of the patient so that when the patient recovers from anesthesia, they can see that their skin has been cut, but in fact, it's not actually inserting you know, other tools in, into the patient's body. But the remarkable thing, again, seems to be that patients get better. Now, again, I want to be very clear. This does not mean that all surgery, the benefits of all surgery is just the placebo effect. The fact that people respond to sugar pills does not mean that the only reason medications work is because of the placebo effect. It just says that separate from the chemical effects of a drug, separate from whatever the good the surgery might be doing for you, there is a certain amount of faith and belief that you have that you're going to get better. That's in a very important part of the cure. And you say the placebo effect shines on even drugs we know that work chemically. We not only benefit from it chemically, but we benefit from the fact that we believe that they're working. Exactly. And that's so been- that's right. But as you can tell, this raises sort of really interesting ethical questions now. Let's say let's say you were a doctor, and by the way, you have an excellent bedside manner. So if you want to switch out your radio host and become a, a doctor, I think you have a rich future in front of you. But let's say, for example, you, you were a doctor and I came to you as a patient and you knew about the placebo effect and you just said, let me prescribe Shankar placebo pills. They clearly don't have side effects. You know, they're going to have all these benefits. Why don't I try and do that? At some level, that now runs a risk because at some level, if I get discovered that you've been lying to me, it might impair the trust that I have in you. And in fact, ironically, it might impair the faith that I have in the placebo effect. So part of the reason the placebo effect works is precisely because you don't think that you're getting placebos. You think you're getting the real thing. A lot of racial equity work, I was just in a class today around this, works around the idea that we all have unconscious racial bias. And I wonder how you take a look at that in terms of our hidden brain. That's certainly part of our hidden brain, our our unconscious biases. Can we think around that? Can we understand that and thereby defeat those biases? Yeah, so the, 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 the idea of unconscious biases was really one of the central ideas that I explored in, in my book, The Hidden Brain, uh, 10 years ago. It was really looking at the ways in which unconscious prejudice affects us in all manner of different ways. And I think there's been a lot of interesting research that's come out over the last 10 or 20 years that shows that without people's awareness, unconscious biases subtly you know, nudge their behavior in, in a direction that might not be consistent with people's values. Um, useful delusions in some ways, the, the new book takes a new tack on that idea. It, it certainly says these, these are 
you know, biases that affect all of us. But I think it suggests that there might be a novel way to combat these biases. So in my first book, The Hidden Brain, I argue that the way to combat unconscious biases was essentially to take the controls away from the unconscious mind and move the controls to the conscious mind. So in other words, if the unconscious mind had biases, as you're making a decision about whether to hire someone for a job or promote someone in a position, if your unconscious mind has these biases, try and pull that decision out of unconscious decision-making and make the decision consciously, make the decision with as much deliberation as possible, use metrics as possible, use the values of the conscious brain to combat the unconscious brain. Useful Delusions argues that in many ways, we might be more effective if we can sometimes use the biases of the unconscious brain to combat the biases of the unconscious brain. Let me give you an example. All of us remember, you know, at least those of us of a certain age, what it was like to um, live in the United States in the days after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, You remember that in the first couple of weeks after the 9-11 attacks, it was actually a period of really bitter political polarization uh, that whole year, 2001. But in the weeks after the 9-11 attacks, people forgot all of a sudden that they were Republicans or Democrats, and people thought of themselves as being Americans. Uh, And what happened, of course, is that the attacks were so traumatic and so painful and so difficult that for a second, people's minds now focus not on their political parties, but on this larger identity that they had as members of a single group, members of a country. Now, you could argue that all of these in some ways are delusional beliefs. Your belief that you're a Democrat, your belief that you're a Republican, your belief that you're an American, All of these things in some ways are inventions. These are groups, categories, identities that have been invented by the human mind. They're not, they don't have objective reality. In some ways they are, you could call them delusions. In some ways they've been produced by the human mind. But the way to overcome polarization was not to preach to people that polarization was bad. It was to give people in some ways a new identity, a a higher identity to which they could subscribe. The same thing applies to all manner of different kinds of prejudices. Uh, If you look at groups, for example, that are bitterly divided, sometimes one way to bring them together is to draw their attention, not to the irrationality of their biases, but to, in some ways, a larger bias, a higher bias. If you can get people to focus on the larger identities they have, so for example, in a workplace, if you can get people to focus on the camaraderie of the workplace, the, the, the morale of the workplace as a whole, if you can get people, for example, to get behind the sports team or the success of the sports team as a whole, it becomes easier in some ways not to prioritize thinking about your racial divisions or thinking about gender divisions. And in some ways, the the loyalty to the sports team or the loyalty to the organization or the loyalty to the country are not necessarily more rational beliefs, but it turns out that one way to combat unconscious biases is to use the very powerful unconscious brain to combat those biases. The psychology or brain science inform at all the current debate we have in our country where half the country thinks the other half is deluded about the election. They think the election was stolen. Yeah. They think they think that all, they think that the, the, what we're experiencing now with the pandemic is trumped up. They think that uh, getting a vaccination is a bad idea. And the other half thinks they're delusional. I mean, both sides are, seem extremely polarized. And you talked about maybe getting to a higher place to bring people together. Is yeah. there such a higher place when it comes to these clear and present political debates? I think there is. Uh, and, you know, I sometimes do this as, a, as, a, as an experiment. In the evening, I'll, I'll sit and, and scroll through the various cable television channels. And, you know, you look at the channel that's catering to progressives and the channel that's catering to conservatives. And for a second, if you don't listen to the content, but you just listen to the tone of what's being said, the tone of both those channels actually is almost the same. You know, people are incredulous that 50% of the country can believe something that is clearly wrong, that to them seems so obviously wrong, that you have to think these other people must either be morons or they must be evil. There can be no other explanation for the fact that they think up is down and down is up. Now, this is true for both sides. And if you, again, scroll between these channels, each of us, you know, if we, if we belong to one side or the other, it's very easy to see that the other side is crazy. It's harder to see that the other side thinks of your side in exactly the same way. I think there is a useful insight that comes out of useful delusions, which is in some ways the fervor with which we stick to our loyalties and to our tribes in some ways is a measure of a delusion. 
And those delusions, uh, we stick to those delusions in some ways because they perform psychological roles for us. They perform psychological functions for us. When we associate deeply with our groups, whether that group is a political party or a sports team or a country or a family or a tribe, when we associate very deeply with these groups, we derive comfort from the loyalty of the group, from feeling like we're part of a group, that we're feeling like part of a large mass of people. And so when someone comes along to us and challenges our views and challenging those views, involve questioning our loyalties to our group, we're essentially being asked to choose between two things that are very difficult. On the one hand, someone saying, pay attention to the facts, the facts are important, but the facts might mean, following the facts might mean, I have to give up the loyalties I have to my tribe, to my group. And in our ancestral past, people who lost the loyalty of their tribes and groups were not brave, you know, by brave sort of leaders or individual individualists, they were people who ended up dead. They were people who ended up ostracized because if you didn't have the tribe behind you, you ended up dead. One of the useful insights, I think, when it comes to combating these biases, I think, is to approach these divisions with more empathy and compassion and less judgment and less facts. I think many of us believe falsely that throwing facts at the other side convinces them of the wrongness of their ideas. Even a cursory glance at the last 12 months will tell you that that is clearly a delusional belief. Well, in fact, as a fellow journalist, you can appreciate how this is very depressing to think that when you provide facts and information, people not only reject the facts, but they cling to their delusional beliefs even stronger. I mean, where does this leave our profession? You know, it it leaves our profession in some ways in the position of not actually being very carefully attentive to the psychology of what's, what's been known for a long time. You know, more than half a century ago, the psychologist Leon Festinger infiltrated a group that believed the world was going to come to an end. And Festinger infiltrated the group because he wanted to see what happened when the world did not come to an end and how people in some ways would cope with the fact that reality had proved them wrong. He expected that people would say, okay, I made a mistake. This was a dreadful error that I made. Clearly, the world has not come to an end. Emphatically, that is not what happened. When the world did not come to an end, the people in the small group came up with new beliefs and new rationalizations of why the world had not ended. In fact, many of them believed that the things that they had done as they were working up to the end of the world, in fact, headed off the world from actually ending. So in other words, they they wrote themselves into the story and said, it's because of us that the world did not actually end. This is the case for all of us. And I think many of us as journalists, I think, fail to understand sort of the role that our loyalties are playing in holding us to, you know, our groups. Uh, You spoke about politics a second ago. You know, over the course of the four years of the Trump administration, you know, the Washington Post, I think, cataloged, you know, the falsehoods and lies and misstatements that came out of the Trump White House. And I think at the end of the four years, they they calculated there were more than 30,000 lies and falsehoods that came out of the Trump White House in the in the four years of the Trump presidency. Now, between 2016 and, and 2020, if I remember the numbers correctly, I believe Donald Trump received 11 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. So again, a very cursory glance at the facts will tell you that presenting people with facts is often not an effective way to change their minds. In some ways, it causes people to dig in, to you know get deeper, dig their heels in deeper. It's far more important in some ways to get people to question their own views from the inside out rather than the outside in. And you're going to get further in doing that by asking people empathetic questions, by asking people, what does this belief mean to you? Talk to me about what this feels like to you. What would happen if you gave up this belief? Is it possible that there might be other ways that you might think about this? I'm not suggesting this is a panacea. I'm not suggesting this would always work. I certainly am suggesting it would be a more effective way than what we're doing right now. Have you ever tried it? You know, I've tried it sometimes, but I will admit that it's very difficult to do. I remember having a dinner with, um, you know, an old college friend of mine some years ago, and he was firmly convinced the United States, the CIA and the FBI were behind the 9-11 attacks. And I was so upset when he said that, that I spent the next 90 minutes arguing with him and telling him why he could not possibly be right and throwing all kinds of facts at him. And at the end of 90 minutes, all that happened is that we were, Latin, we were not friends anymore because he did, we didn't like the, neither of us liked the conversation. It's very difficult, I think, to sort of approach those things empathetically and compassionately. And I will be the first to say that I'm not always successful at doing it. I will say that when I've tried to do it, I feel like I get further with people. I'm able, when people 
feel like I'm not lecturing them, I'm not hectoring them, and I'm not treating them with judgment and contempt, I do feel that people respond to me better. You, you said at the start that one of the things that draws people to Hidden Brain is the fact that in some ways we're a show that sounds non-judgmental. We're a show that comes across as kind and compassionate. I do think people respond to that and they hear it even, even when, it, when it's just in the tone of someone's voice. Shaka Vedantam is our guest we're talking about uh the way the brain deceives itself and useful delusions. That's the title of his new book, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. We've got some questions for you here. When evolution conflicts with our ostensible values or seems to, for me, it raises the question of conscious evolution. I think consciousness evolution. Is that possible and how could we guide it? I'm not quite sure I'm following the question. Is the question asking possibly whether... Could, we, could our consciousness evolve, I believe, is the nature of the question. Could our consciousness evolve? Is it, is it possible that we could develop a higher consciousness that may deal with some delusions, harmful delusions? Yeah, so in some ways, it's, it's a really interesting thing because evolution has given us brains that in some ways are capable of doing these two very different things. It's given us brains that, in fact, are capable of tremendous acts of reason and logic, and allow us to basically look at the facts and invent. The scientific method really is a way of inventing a whole process to arrive at the truth without being waylaid by self-deception. That's what the scientific method is, is primarily about. Simultaneously, however, our brains are also the product of a long line of, of evolution where the things that kept our ancestors safe, the things that protected our ancestors are still with us today. So is it possible that our conscious minds, our rational minds in some ways can guide you know, the, the, the emotions that we experience? Yes, it can, but all of us know that that's not easy to do. The simplest example I often think of is in the realm of food. You know, in our ancestral history, famine was such a common experience that our ancestors learned, not just human ancestors, but other, other species learned that you want to try and amass as many calories as possible because if you amassed calories, you were less likely to die by starvation. And as a result, our brains were, were evolved to basically give us immense rewards when we eat high calorie foods. Now, that was very functional for us in our ancestral past. I think many of us would say that's less functional for us today, especially in rich countries where we're surrounded by a glut of calories. The, the algorithms that say, served our ancestors no longer serve us very well. Now you could ask, can you make your conscious brain guide your unconscious brain not to like the dessert not to care as much about the chocolate ice cream, you know, I would say good luck with that, you know, <laughs> as somebody who has a pretty sweet tooth himself. I make myself feel guilty when I have French fries, so I only eat half the basket. <laughs> wait, wait, this is a great question because it's impossible to answer, but I like the question. What percentage of our brains is working from reality versus delusional thinking? Is there a scientific metric for that? You know, I think you will be surprised to hear my answer because my answer is I think most of the brain is actually not working from reality, or at least reality as I think most, most of us think of reality. So let me give you a couple of really simple examples. In any given moment, you know, and this is, um, this is work done by, by neuroscientist uh, Donald Hoffman, he, in any given moment, the, the human eye takes in about a billion bits of information. The information gets sent to the brain, it gets reduced a thousandfold, and only a million bits of information go through the optic nerve actually to the brain. The brain discards the vast majority of that information and processes about 40 bits of information in any given moment. So you have a billion bits come in, the brain processes about 40 bits, and really, we think that we are seeing everything, we think we're taking in everything, but the reality is we're in fact not taking in everything. This is why, for example, when we go to magic shows, we believe that we're paying very close attention to what's happening, and yet magicians find it so easy to trick us all the time. It's because magicians have understood that human attention, the ability to take in stuff is actually really limited. Expand this idea to all manner of different things the brain does. And again, ask yourself over and over this question, why does the brain have the functions and abilities that it has. If you buy the idea that we are the product of natural selection, that we're the product of a long process of evolution, these things exist because they serve some kind of functional purpose. Everything your brain does is designed because it serves a functional purpose. If it didn't serve a functional purpose, your ancestors probably would have died as a result of that. And so when you think about what the brain is doing, I'm not suggesting that all of us are not seeing reality on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. I'm saying that every part of what we do as we speak, as we hear, as we interact with our friends, as we taste food, all of this is being shaped by the many, many algorithms and machinations that are happening in the hidden brain. And I would argue that in many ways, these are delusions but, and useful delusions. A lot of what you write about in Useful Delusions and in your other work 
is uh, based on social science research. Yes. And many in the so-called hard sciences, physics yes. and chemistry, deride social science research. They say often the studies, as fascinating as they are, are based on small sample sizes, yeah. often populated by college students because the studies are academic work and college students are readily available on campus. I can remember that from going to Clark University. You couldn't walk across campus without being buttonholed to participate in an experiment. Yes. So they're a group that gets studied very often. How do we kind of take that into account? Are those criticisms valid and accurate when it comes to a lot of the social science research that you report out? Yes, I think they are valid. And I think psychology in some ways is grappling with a lot of these questions and asking itself questions about how sure can we be about the results that we have. There's been a huge movement in psychology to have what what's called open science, where scientists are revealing more about their methods and data to, to allow other scientists to come in and evaluate them. That said, I, I think that the criticism that the social sciences do not have the same precision as a physics experiment is actually sort of a nonsensical argument. And that's because precisely human beings by definition are not electrons and protons. We're actually combinations of trillions of electrons and protons working in this incredibly complex system that's doing incredibly complex things. The idea that you could have the same precision as measuring an electron hitting a screen is just absurd. And in fact, it's not even something that should possibly be aspired for. I think it's a mistake in some ways to go too far in one direction or the other. To sort of look at these studies and basically say there's nothing to question that we should take them in and throw a cloth, I think is very dangerous. But it's also a mistake, I think, to sort of dismiss them and basically say, because you're studying college students or because you're studying a sample of people over here, it has nothing to say about the people over there. I would argue that Leon Festinger's study, where he infiltrated this group of people at the end, you know, who believed the world was coming to an end, and he invented this idea of something called cognitive dissonance, it's a profoundly powerful idea. And it explains so many different things about the world when we look out at the world. When you look out, for example, at, at the example that you just gave, Ross, about an election that's taken place and how people, when they're confronted by the facts, dig in their heels even deeper, cognitive dissonance is a very powerful explanatory framework to understand how that happens. Now, is it possible that there are nuances that have to be added to cognitive dissonance? Are there boundary conditions? where the phenomenon of cognitive dissonance doesn't work? Are there ways in which that we can refine the theory? Absolutely. But I think that you can go too far in one direction or the other. I, I try very hard to try and find the, the thread that's both rigorous, but is also speaking to the concerns that people are having in their daily lives. Jump into the chat box if you have a question for Shankar Vedantam. Um, here's a great one. How do you ascertain if you are deluded? <laughs> <laughs> It is a tricky question, right? Because the question, of course, has, has picked up on the fact that if the mechanism that we have to detect delusion is the brain, and the brain, in fact, is prone to a whole host of delusions, you're asking a machine that basically is suffering from vast amounts of delusions to tell if it's suffering from delusions. In fact, in our ancestral past, our brain has found it useful not to inform us that, in fact, it's presenting to us a delusion. So when I look out at the world, I don't feel like I'm experiencing a delusion. I don't feel like my brain is discarding the vast amount of visual information that's coming in through my eyes. I feel like I can see everything. In fact, that's not the case, but it feels like I can take in everything. I will say there is a subset of things where you can make the case the brain actually is capable of intuiting objective reality. And that subset of things, interestingly enough, is not so much in the physical world, but in the mathematical world. So, for example, the brain can come up with mathematical theorems, mathematical ideas that build on one, one on top of the other, that in fact are objectively true, right? So, in other words, if you have a right-angled triangle, the square of the hypotenuse is going to be equal to the square of the sum of the other two sides, right? That is a mathematical truth. Even if you, human beings did not exist on the planet, even if all of human beings went extinct, that truth would still be a truth. So in fact, there are truths that we can arrive at in some ways a process of science, a scientific method is designed in some ways to get past our delusions, to get past our self-deceptions, to ask the question, how can I know this is actually true? But, but I applaud the, 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 the listener for asking that question because it's a really important question. When we look into our own minds and we have the certainty that we're seeing the world for what it is, you have have to ask yourself the question, can I trust the machine that's actually doing the seeing? Um, there's the old uh, 
parable. I don't, I don't know if this is a this is a this is a true parable or not. But this is the old parable that I learned when I was in high school. Of Confucius was having a dream that that he was a butterfly, and the next day somebody said, "Why are you why are you looking so depressed?" And he said, "You know, I had a dream yesterday that I was a butterfly." And people and he, the the other person said, "Well, you know, those those dreams happen all the time. What's so strange about that?" And Confucius says that yesterday, if if I was a man who could dream that he was being a butterfly. How is it not possible that right now I'm a butterfly dreaming that he's a man? And of course, when you start asking these questions, you get into pretty deep waters very quickly. Here's a, a pragmatic question that I'm, I'm sure you've thought about a lot. Uh, recommendations which you make to public health officials who are trying to convince us to get vaccinated. Yes, I think that's a really useful question because, again, the standard way we go about this is to tell people, here are the double-blind control studies, here's what the data says. And I'm not for a second saying that that's not valuable to do. It is really important to do the science properly, get the accurate science, communicate the science well. That's absolutely important to do. But the, the challenge does not stop there because, as we've just discussed in lots of different ways, the facts alone are not sufficient to convince many people, especially when their group loyalties demand that they don't believe those facts. At those points, I think it's really important to turn to psychology and to ask how we can recruit, in some ways, the self-deceiving brain to actually get people to believe the things that we need them to believe. So one way, for example, is when it comes to combating smoking, for example, you know, for many years, we would go to, to schools and basically tell young people, 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, you know, smoking gives you lung cancer and gives you emphysema and you really shouldn't do it. And it's really going to be bad for you. And even though those things are absolutely true, it didn't dissuade people from smoking. What's really changed when it comes to smoking in young people is that smoking no longer is cool today. That if you're smoking right now, you are something of a social outcast. So in some ways, we've moved the out group to sort of say that if you're a smoker, you're part of this ostracized group. You're part of this group that in some ways is on the outside. And again, our unconscious minds, our self-deceiving minds are keenly aware who's in the in group, who's in the out group. So in some ways, if you want to recruit people for a vaccination drive, the questions to ask now is, how do you make sure that the people feel like they're part of the group when they're being vaccinated? How do you turn vaccinations into a patriotic choice that people are making? You know, lots of people are willing to do extraordinarily difficult and dangerous things in service of country. People are willing to go to war and lay down their lives in service of the country. You know, and how do we get people to do that? We don't get people, we don't sort of give soldiers double blind control studies saying, you know, the cost benefit analysis tells us that you would be good fighting for your country. No, we inspire them. We tell them this is what it means to be a great American. This is what it means to be a great patriot. And we need to do the same thing, I think, when it comes to spreading the messages of science. And conversely, uh, can you make it so that people who don't take vaccinations are not cool the way we did with cigarettes? I think that would be that exactly is the idea. And I think part of what we should communicate in some ways is also to communicate the idea that it is the norm for most people to take vaccines. So I think in some ways when journalists are communicating the science, and this is true from cigarette smoking as well, it's much more important to talk about the number of people who actually are getting vaccinated than to talk about the number of people who are not getting vaccinated. You need to sort of tell people where the norms are when it comes to combating bullying in high schools, for example. Studies have found that if you can move the norm, if you can get people, to, most kids to understand that most kids are not bullies, most kids don't like bullies and bullying is not cool. You're going to be more effective combating bullying than if you tell kids bullying is really painful and hurtful and immoral and you really shouldn't be doing it. Figuring out how to move the social norms is really important. Let me give you one, one quick uh, example, Ross. Um, you know, we were talking about sports right before we started our conversation. I'm a sports fan myself. And sometimes, you know, when I'm watching football, professional football matches in January, where, you know, teams are playing in, you know, 12 degree, you know, weather in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and you, you look in the stands and you see fans of the sports team standing there bare chested in 12 degree Fahrenheit weather where it's snowing and they have the colors of their team, you know, written on their chest. And you have to ask yourself, what is with these people that they believe so passionately in their teams, they're willing to put themselves at such, at such risk, at such harm's way. And when I see this, I sometimes ask myself the question, where is the same passion when it comes to ensuring that everyone gets vaccinated? Where is the same passion when it comes to combating climate change? Surely those things are far more important than the fate of your local sports team. And the question then is, how can we recruit some of the passions that people have for their sports teams? How do we recruit those same passions 
in the service of something like climate change? How in some ways do we turn climate change not from a cost-benefit equation, but as something that is a sacred value, something that is not sort of negotiable, where we basically say, my identity is tied up with protecting the planet. Moving, I think, from where we are right now to there would be a very important way of moving us forward to combating these really big and difficult problems. Uh, Shankar, as I was reading your new book, Useful Delusions, that you wrote with Bill Messler, I, was, I also saw an article this weekend about psychologist Elizabeth Loftus, who spent some time at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And her great insight is that we think of our memory as a photograph of what actually happened. And her work suggested that memories are created. They're not recalled. She testified for the defense in many high-profile sexual abuse cases, which is extremely controversial. But how, how does memory play into this notion of useful or harmful delusion? So again, start always with the question when you're looking at any feature of the brain. Ask yourself, what function does this purpose serve? Why, does, why do we have memories at all? And if you ask this question, of course, the answer is quite obvious. We have memories because it's really valuable to remember certain things that happened to you so that the good things that happen, you can seek out, seek them out and do them again. And the bad things that happen, you can avoid them and try and prevent them from happening again. So in some ways, it's not surprising that our memories in some ways are designed to pay attention to things that have high emotional valence. So and this has been found in many ways that our memories are much sharper when we have strong emotions connected to them, both good and bad. But it turns out that like many things in the brain, our memories in fact are constructed, that it feels as if that when I think back to what I did yesterday, it almost feels like I'm reviewing a videotape or I have a photographic memory or reviewing audio tape. But in fact, this is not the case that numerous studies show that memory is in fact constructed. Now, that's actually a very useful thing in some ways, but it can also be a problematic thing in some ways as the, as the article about Elizabeth Loftus talked about in, in criminal justice settings, for example, when you're asking people to remember things that happened two years ago or three years ago or 30 years ago, it is really difficult to trust what people are saying, even when they genuinely believe that they're remembering exactly what happened. Um, you know, in, in recent weeks, Ross, I've been, I've been reading this, uh, this story. Uh, it's called The Ship of Theseus. Are you familiar with this philosophical conundrum called The Ship no. of Theseus? So according to the, the story, Theseus was this great uh, Greek warrior. And when he finished his various travels, they kept his, they kept his ship in the harbor uh, as almost like a museum piece. And then over the subsequent you know, years and decades, the ship began to rot and decay. And when that happened, they would take out the rotted planks and they would replace the rotted planks with new planks. And over time, they did this with the entire ship. So every part of the ship of Theseus was replaced by some new part along this long process of rejuvenation. And philosophers starting with Plato have asked this question, if every part of the ship of Theseus is new, is it in fact the ship of Theseus anymore? Or is it in fact a new ship? And other philosophers have asked an even deeper question, if you could take all the old parts of the ship of Theseus and now construct a new ship with it, is that new ship, in fact, the real ship of Theseus or, in fact, a new ship? And the reason I mention all of this is not to pull us into deep philosophical waters, but when you think about ourselves, when you think about our physical bodies and our mental, and our mental minds, in fact, what's happening to all of us in some ways is a version of the ship of Theseus. At a very physical level, we know the cells in our bodies turn over all the time. We are not the same people physically that we were 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But even psychologically, we're constantly being layer upon layer upon layer is being added to us. Layers are being forgotten. And yet when I think about myself, I think that there is a single unbroken line between the time that I was a child and the adult that I am today. And in many ways, this speaks to the idea that Loftus was talking about, that in some ways, the sense that we have of self itself, in some ways, might be one of the most profound delusions that we have. It's a very functional delusion because it allows me to believe it's the same person who was the child 40 years ago, who is the adult today, when in fact, that, that, that's, that's actually a fiction, that's, a, that's, that's an illusion that the mind is producing because it's useful. Shankar, last week uh, you were in my seat and you were interviewing physicist Brian Greene for, for Town Hall. It was a fascinating discussion. And Brian Greene, for people who aren't familiar with him, I, I, call, I think of him as a hardcore materialist. He believes consciousness is a collection of sub-molecular physical interactions, which to me kind of implies that at some point science might be able to figure out how those, those interactions work thereby denying the fact that there's free will. Everything that happens is going to happen because of a material basis for it. And I, I might have missed the part, but I wondered what you thought of that viewpoint that he was expressing in the interview. 
So I think that he might be right, but I find that deeply depressing. Uh, and I find myself in, in the unfortunate position of actually, if you tell me that, that free will, in fact, is that there's something beyond the physical brain, that in fact there's some other higher thing that, that sort of in some ways breeds vitality into this physical object that allows us to basically have a sense of ourselves as, a, as, a, as people. I find myself unsatisfied with that because all the scientific evidence just points in the opposite direction. Every time we learn something new about how the brain works, we understand, oh, what we thought was this incredible, you know, conscious ability to perceive taste or smell or sight, in fact, is driven by this constellation of neurons that are functioning in a very mechanistic fashion. But when you take me over to green side and, and I'm forced to basically go to the end of that argument, I find that a really depressing and terrifying argument that in fact, that in fact that there, is no, there is no free will. So I find myself caught somewhere in the middle. I will add one other thing. When you, if you buy the idea of useful delusions and what I just said about the ship of thesis, it really makes you question how much of your brain actually you can even think of as really being autonomous anymore. Perhaps all of it in some ways, even the sense, if even the sense of self that you have is actually an illusion that turns out to be functional. So in other words, ask yourself, why would evolution have given us a sense of self? And again, the answer might be quite obvious. It's actually useful to have a sense of self. To imagine that we are the same person that we were 40 years ago to today is very useful. Useful to imagine that you're the same person that you're going to be 40 years from now, very useful, because you do all the things that will protect you as an individual if you have a sense of self. When you protect yourself as an individual, you're going to protect the genes that you have inside you, you give your genes a chance to be propagated to the next generation. Those genes have a chance to leap from you to your children, to your grandchildren. The genes survive. So in some ways, when you think about it this way, it's a depressing idea. But I fear that it actually might be, it might be the case that even our sense of self might, in fact, at some level, be a useful delusion. We had this question from Jonathan Bricker at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. Post-COVID, what will be the hardest behaviors for people to change? That's a really interesting question. Um, I know that one thing that I think is likely to happen post-COVID is I think when people re-enter the world where they're engaging with people and so forth, I think there's going to be a period of adjustment because in some ways I think what's happened is all of us have gotten used, at least those of us who've been quarantining or socially distancing each other from, from one another, we've gotten used in some ways to, to living lives that are mostly cut off from other people. And I think in some ways it's actually going to be quite difficult to go back and actually rebuild those bonds. In some ways, it's, going to be, it's almost like learning to walk again. I think there's going to be some of that when we go back. I'm going to have to give some thought to what might be the hardest thing that's going to, that, that's going to happen. I, I suspect there's going to be many things, but I, I, off the top of my head, nothing springs to mind. We'll listen for a future episode of Hidden Brain for that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got, we got some great questions here about various aspects of what you're talking about. This is actually applies to your work as a journalist also. In doing research on a topic, how can we know that we're landing on information that is accurate? So there are lots of ways I think you can rest, find out that you're resting on information that's accurate. Uh, and again, the, the first thing is to start with is, is to start with the assumption that in fact, the information that you're looking at might not be accurate. So in other words, when you start from a position of humility, it, it allows you to basically take some steps that allow you to get to a place where you can be more confident. The process of science tends to be an ever-ending, never-ending process of sort of refined maps that you see clearer and clearer visions of reality. I think most scientists will tell you that they don't expect that they will ever reach the final map that tells you that they have seen everything. You expect that in 10 years time, people will have a deeper and better understanding of science than they do today. So in many ways, the scientific method is, I think, one of the classic ways you have to actually truth squad yourself and to, quest and to feel that you have some confidence when it comes to the information that you have. So for example, is the information coming to you from multiple different sources? If the same information comes to you from multiple independent sources, you can be a little bit more confident that the information, in fact, is accurate. You know, if you're, if you're walking down the street and you ask someone directions to a place and they tell you that it's down, it's down the street this way, and then you go 20 yards and you ask another person and they give you the same information, you know, you can talk to five people in a row and if they all point in the same direction, it's possible that all five are wrong, but it's less likely that all five are wrong. It's more likely that, in fact, the direction in which they're pointing is, in fact, the correct direction. So in some ways, the consensus of independent voices is one way to get at the truth. The other way to get at the truth is to actually set up, in some ways, um, scientific experiments that allow you to, to disentangle your own biases and hopes 
from the outcomes that you see. So in a placebo-controlled trial, for example, the idea of a placebo-controlled trial in some ways is to remove your hopes and desires for the outcome from the outcome that you actually see, especially when the outcomes are what's called double-blind, when you actually don't know who's received the drug, who's received the placebo, who's gotten better, who's not gotten better. So the scientific method, I think, is one way, is, is one way to go about it. But let me mention one last thing that I think is really useful. This is a very useful hack when it comes to allowing us to test the accuracy of our own beliefs or the strength of our knowledge of our own things. And it's called the illusion of explanatory depth. Uh, psychologists have known this for a long time. If, if, if you ask people, you know, do you know how a bicycle works? Most people will say, yeah, I know how a bicycle works. And you say, all right, can you please draw for me a bicycle? Just draw a, just a sketch of a bicycle. And people try and draw the bicycle. And very quickly, they realize they don't know really fundamental things about how the bicycle works. They don't know which wheel the chain is attached to or how the handlebar works or how the brain, how the, how the brakes operate. And it turns out that when we are forced to actually give an explanation for the beliefs that we have, it allows us to surface parts of our knowledge that, in fact, are areas of ignorance. So one way in some ways to get at the truth is actually to ask people to tell you what it is that they think they know. When it comes to combating conspiracy theories, this is why it might be more effective to ask people questions rather than to hector them with facts. When you ask people, explain to me how the United States could have been behind the 9-11 attacks. Explain to me in a granular fashion how the conspiracy could have worked. What would have been necessary for it to work? And ask people to actually voice how the conspiracy works. They are much more likely now to stumble on the fact that in fact, there are gaps in the knowledge. When you're arguing with someone, you're not usually aware of the gaps in your knowledge. When you're explaining your own beliefs to someone, that's often where we stumble and we realize that there might be something missing. Maybe, but sometimes people can go on and on and on about the reasons for their for their uh, beliefs that are not true. Um, I, we're just about out of time, but I do have a couple more questions for you. One of the reasons I love Hidden Brain, uh, the podcast and the radio show, is that I can't listen to the billboard to the opening of the show without getting immediately sucked into it because it addresses so many important things about life. You did an entire program about how to find meaning at work uh, at the risk of of making it super short, what are kind of some of the takeaways? What advice can you give people who are trying to find meaning at work and having difficulty with it? Yeah, so this is one of the great uh, sadnesses I feel that I, I often see in life because I feel like there's a small minority of people who are doing work that they truly love. And I would put myself very privileged in that category. I'm, I'm doing work where I truly feel like I'm pursuing my vocation. Like I wake up every morning and I feel like this is what I was meant to be doing with my life. And many people, I think, don't have that. And it's a great loss. You know, Sigmund Freud once said the two sources of joy and meaning in the world are love and work. These are the two areas that give our lives meaning. And I think certainly when it comes to work, I think many people lack that sense of meaning. There's been a lot of studies that also show that when people have a sense of meaning, they are in some ways protected from all of the downsides that come from a job. You know, you're protected from all of the, the excuse me, sorry for a second. They're protected from all of the, the hassles, the stresses that come that come with the job. You have you have greater passion, you have a greater internal drive that happens. I think how you find that work, how you find meaning in work is a really tricky thing. One thing is certainly, I think, is what is it about the work that's not about you? In other words, if you could do this, in other words, what is the activity that you would choose to do where someone was not asking you to do it, someone was not paying you to do it? where you wake up on a Saturday morning and you basically say, this is how I want to spend the next two hours. In some ways, paying attention to those internal drives, I think are a very important way to find the meaning because it tells you here are the things that you actually care about deep down. Another thing that I think is an immense source of meaning is to find work that benefits other people. I think in some ways, when we find work that is not about us, that actually is outward focused, that's focused on the work, that's focused on someone else, there is something very profound that happens in some ways when we get, we enter what psychologists sometimes call a state of flow, where it's no longer you, as in the egotistical you, who's actually doing the work, but the work itself, you just become the messenger for the work. And there's something deeply pleasurable and meaningful about that kind of work. Finally, Shankar, outside of journalism and your radio program, you've also in the past written plays. I want you to tell us about that comedy you wrote called Tom, Dick and Harriet that was staged at the Brick Playhouse in Philadelphia. And also, is it possible we might see a play of Hidden Brain at some point? 
uh, I, I will say that uh, that play was, uh, you know, I was I was very proud of it when I wrote it. But when I look back and look back at it now, I'm not sure it was a very good play. It actually grew out of the story that I wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer about a, a, a paternity lawsuit where um, a man basically uh, discovered five years into, into the life of his child that he was not, in fact, the biological father of the child. And he went to court and basically wanted to disconnect himself from the child. And, and a colleague of mine at the Inquirer and I was sort of so astonished by this. If you're living with a child for five years, and you know all the things that I said at the start, the delusional love that parents have for children, how can you look at a paternity DNA test and basically say, this child is no longer my child? How could that actually happen? So Tom, Dick, and Harriet was really playing with the idea of what it means to be a parent, how much of it is about biological parenthood, and how much of it is about emotional parenthood. And as you can tell from my comments, I very much come down on the side of the, the importance of the emotional parent actually being what it really means to be a parent. Do you have a new play in your back pocket? I don't have a new play in my back pocket, <laughs> but I will say that, that we have starting to explore ways in which Hidden Brain might become a television show. Uh, um, not, not sort of a fictional television show, but ways in which we can bring the social science research that we explore in the podcast and radio show to a television audience. And This American Life did a very interesting short-term experiment with, uh, with their radio it. show. Yeah. Shankar Vedantam, it's been a great pleasure. The book is called Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Shankar, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. This is really wonderful. Town Hall Seattle presented this conversation between Shankar Vedantam and KUW's Ross Reynolds on April 13th. You'll find the full event and other great Seattle area talks on our website, KUOW.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.